Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. I'm David Huntsberger. Let's get right into part two with a thoroughly fascinating conversation with Dr. Patrick Simon from Oberlin College. Again, it should be said that the views expressed are his own and do not represent any places of employment. Not that that matters at all. There's nothing really remotely controversial. Anyway, enjoy it. Here's part two. Back with Professor Patrick Simon from Oberlin College. Neural networks, AI, the brain, neuroscience. And we were talking about um, trying to develop like values. I think I, the thing that I kept sticking on in was the phrase when we, like, we, we all kind of agree on technology, making the world better. And you can read certain books that say, despite the population's growth, despite what we're doing to certain ecosystems, we as a species have the ability to overcome that, to correct our mistakes. And you can envision out these dystopian you know sort of scenarios where uh you drop something a piece of trash and a little robot comes over i've got it and you're like i guess that's good and then it throws it away and then a boston robotics creepy ass dog comes over and is like citizen you're not allowed entry here and you're like ah and so maybe it turns out there was a some sensor that went off there where there was going to be a gas leak. And you go, oh, thanks, technology. Also terrifying. Yeah. And you're skiing yeah. down a hill and there's a drone. You agreed by purchasing a lift ticket at a discounted price to have your data sold and be a part of our marketing brochure. And we're filming you. And you just have like a swarm of bees, but our drones around you as you ski. And you're like, this happens when I go fishing too. And this happens when I go out <laughs> to the lake. And what, yeah. okay, technology is helpful. Like I'm not hurt. I'm, you know, we're, we're cutting down on illnesses and diseases and we're, we're pursuing all these things that make living a long time more attainable. But in the old living a long time with your wits about your feeling like you had some, uh, you know, some skin in the game as far as your own survival, that seems to be a very human thing to need to believe in yourself. And technology seems like it's chipping away at that just a little. Oh, I'd say it's chipping away more than that. Yeah, and I would say even you know, going beyond, and this is just opinion now, of course. <laughs> well, a lot of it has been opinion, but um, I think this goes to the heart of our politics. I think the right wing is particularly driven by exactly what you just said. Everything that gave my life dignity before, you know, you live and die by your wits. You're off on the frontier you better plan enough stuff and you better have enough weaponry and all that tough guy stuff that you know that you're your own person and you control your own destiny and yeah if there's a drought you die Mm -hmm. that's uh, now we're in a situation where no you don't you don't die and you don't want to so almost everybody doesn't volunteer to stick to their guns to (laughs) you know die of their own mistakes or or of you know random calamities yeah um but that takes away something of the sense of control of your own destiny or 
your autonomy or your purposiveness or something like that. I mean, it's not limited to the right wing, but I think that really drives them, this idea that um, all of those things are happening and it's not good and things used to be better. You know, this looking back to the past, whereas on the left, you, you have a little more acceptance of, well, sure, um, but we've been trying to do all these things with technology and also with different social arrangements that solve all sorts of terrible problems that we used to have that were that are pointless, like dying of diseases, for example, that you don't have to die of. It's so simple, but yeah, um, you, you can't, you know, you can't get some people to see that they're focused more on the, the loss than the gain. Um, you have someone, if you got in a vehicle with someone and you're their passenger and they didn't put on their seatbelt, that would tell you so much. And even yeah. if you tried to reason with them to go, what are you, what are you doing? They'd say, right, we're not going to crash. And I go, yeah, but what if someone crosses lanes? What if a drunk driver swerves over someone looking at their phone? Right. I don't live that way. I don't live with that kind of fear. Like, but if yeah. that does happen to you and you died, it was so insanely preventable. Why this little movement of clicking it in yeah you know what we call, we call that pride <laughs> i don't know <laughs> they would they would say that you're living this uh you know um uh, uh what is the word uh cosseted uh what's the you know you're you're in this blanket of comfort and uh you've lost your dignity mm -hmm. you know i may die but i've got my dignity and um you know, what you said about, you know, go far enough with all these robots that you were imagining, you know, keeping you from, from various forms of harm. I mean, it does take away your autonomy. Maybe you want to ski off this uh, cliff. Mm -hmm. You probably are going to get hurt, or there's at least there's a high chance of it, and now they stop you. Well, mm -hmm. they've just taken away your autonomy there. Well, you know, what's the right balance? I think that's what's really hard for all humans, really, is to achieve a sense of balance between competing objectives. Yeah, I do want my autonomy. I really do. But I'd also don't want to die of simple preventable accidents and illnesses that I mean, where's my autonomy then if I'm, you know? Yeah. So finding that balance is so difficult and it's so difficult now that we have the internet going rabbit hole that you know, reinforces what you already think. Um it's it's a tough situation. I, I'm really curious how that will evolve, but uh, maybe we're getting a feel far afield now from. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we could get about, too but... far from the research in that. I, I guess maybe this adds to it. I apologize if it does, but just thinking in like, is it possible to have a cohesive set of values to move forward with? When you think of something like mothers against drunk driving, it's not yes. drunks against drunk driving. It's not former alcoholics against drunk driving it's the people who yeah. were impacted by their behavior they didn't yeah. all get together in a meeting and go guys we are wreaking havoc out on the roads we got to yeah. change our ways it's the people that lost the most prized thing they had on the planet saying let's do something and so yeah. if you've had a child suffer any kind of illness or a, yes. a needless accident of we need ropes by the edges of cliffs when we go on field trips or whatever yeah. it is that you decide that's a value of mine we need robots. We need drones flying over in this situation. Everyone's right. going to have a different look at it. So it's maybe impossible to say, okay, we've all agreed we're not going to put drones up in this area. We're not going to have protective dog robots by these yeah. you know, bridges or what. We'd go, no, no. Someone's going to have a very passionate view as to why we should. So then it goes back to what you were saying of science is just science. It just does it to do it. And it's up to like... 
uh, voters and people like that to decide. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. To decide what matters and mm -hmm. what you want to come from that. So, I mean, you don't, you, no one gets a say over how the world works. That's what science is trying to figure out. You, you just, I'm sorry, you don't get any say over that. People want it. They want the world to have, some of them, they want the world to have started 5,800 years ago. Right. Exactly like it says in the Old Testament. You know, mm -hmm. that's exactly what I want. Well, you know, good luck. I, the world is what it is, and it's going to keep giving you data that conflict with, with this desire you have for a different state of the world. But what you do technologically with that knowledge, that's totally up to us, and we do have to somehow come to an agreement about about what we're willing to allow. The, I, I think science is scientists in the science community in general. And again, your views are your own. These are my sentences that I'm saying, but I think science does a good job of providing people with um, maybe reproductive help and or just the simply like Dave Relia, a guy who was on the podcast long ago, um, who's a mathematician. He used to do stand up mm. as well. And he was like, you should, before you get to use a microwave, have to answer like a questionnaire that's like, I believe in science. Yes. <laughs> you can't have your food heated up and then that. walk away going, by the way, thank you for saving me. Thank you for all that advanced technology that saved my life. Also, the earth is 6,000 years old. Bye-bye. That shouldn't yeah. be allowable. But scientists just go, hmm. yeah, glad you're okay. See you later. Yeah. Well, they, they have no choice. I mean, they, they really are, if they're a scientist acting as a scientist, their job is just to figure out how the world works. And I'm, you know, what what's I guess scary about it is that not only does the technology that results um, have these huge impacts, but also it's kind of you, we get farther and farther from feeling that we understand the world around us. There are these people who understand this stuff and it's so complex. There's so much of it. They start to feel alienated and science is scary mm -hmm. and it's hard to convey sometimes um that it's fun and interesting and beautiful um because it's scary it makes you feel dumb and that's really sad but that's also sort of one of the you know again the world doesn't care and the world has to be described in terms of things that well for example at some level anyway at least in physics it has to be described with math there's no there's no way around it and there's nothing that makes people feel dumber than math um, <laughs> It's sad. Um, and I don't know how, you know, I don't know what we do about that. But that that's another, uh, I, I think another thing that makes people feel in the modern world, sort of alienated, we used to, we used to understand everything, we had a story that explained everything. It was simple, it was common sense. And we didn't have any source of data that generally speaking that that uh, conflicted with that. Because we never did the experiment, we never recorded that observation. You start doing that and suddenly all your preconceptions start to be, you, you get you get into a state of uh, sort of, well, anxiety because you just, it's too from what you thought and, and you're not sure you have the, what it takes to understand it. So I think that's scary for people. Yeah, I think the way uh... science works is, you know, just, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just um, tagging onto that thought, thinking that not that it's necessarily a chicken and egg thing, anxiety versus what you think or know. But if you have people underneath little twinkly lights in the sky and just kind of going like, Any, anyone, 
and everyone every night goes, eh. we bring up thought as the, the thing that, you know, oh, I'm thinking about uh, whether I should go left or right. There's a decision there, therefore there's some thought. But imagination is a thing that I think gets left out sometimes in that the first person that went, oh, those, those twinkly lights? I'm glad you've asked. See, what happened? And they just made up something. And then yeah. over time it was proven to be inaccurate, but some people couldn't get over that. You know, like that calmed yeah. me. E- either it calmed them or it suddenly made them feel anxiety for the first time. Wait, it's yeah. what? Wait, what's up there? And then were they all just sitting there tranquil going, we don't know, and that's great. Or were they sitting there going, I have to know. Someone please take a guess. I just need to live with a guess in my head. And someone, yeah. okay, I think it's a, it's like a pillowcase. They poked holes in it. And yeah. then I'm like, great, okay. I don't know. It, that chicken and it's, egg thing is, it has to be a, a large part of what you work in. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it's, at least it's a large part of science as a whole. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then when you come to, sure, when you come to psychology and neuroscience, people have all sorts of conceptions about how they feel and think and, and how they come to their decisions. And you, you probably heard about, uh, there's a guy named Jonathan Haidt, but he, he's just an example of all these people who look at uh, the science of morality, for example. So we have all these moral beliefs as well. And, and we talked about how science inherently is valueless itself, but you can still scientifically study why do we have the values that we do? Why do you think it's wrong to kill other people? What, you know, well, probably that evolved because if you don't think that, you can't have a complex society and the group next door that does have a complex society is going to wipe you out. And so we've evolved all, all these moral things, particularly around sex, that, that have reasons, but we're not always aware of what they are. So some of the famous things about, you know, thinking you understand your own mind are the are the examples of disgust that people have, um, particularly with regard to sex. You can give people um, lots of hypothetical situations and they're I mean, they're they're hilarious. I mean, they're disturbing. They're hilarious. But, you know, the one I'll just go ahead and tell you, (laughs) one of them was the one that sticks in my mind is you go off, you have this vacation with this woman and you you sleep together and it's wonderful it's just the greatest time and then you come back and a few days later you find out you didn't know it but she was your sister and people are generally really turned off by this they say this is terrible this is awful and then you get them to ask you to say why is this terrible and they think they have these reasons and they think they think it's terrible for these reasons but when you probe on this and you, you really try to get them to explain what was wrong with it, um, they just start making up reasons. They, they come to the reasons after the fact. The disgust was first. It was mm-hmm. primary. That's just built in. We have this inherent taboo uh, for, for having sex with our close relatives, and we evolved it. It's just a circuit in our brains that most of us have because it prevents all sorts of genetic problems that come from sleeping with your close relatives. This is not good for your offspring to to have two close relations as parents. You get all sorts of genetic problems as a result. And so the the group that evolves a circuit that says, no, you're too close to me, uh, this now, this is disgusting. That's just a primal drive. And then you stick your reasons onto it later. But people typically think that they know why they feel the way they do. 
and the, one of the one of the biggest findings in this field is no they don't <laughs> they have the feeling first and then they try to make sense of it with words it would be like um you know that study where they took sweaty shirts put them in a jar I think they were from men, and then they had women come in and sniff them and kind of rank them based on attractiveness. And mm. the, the ones of their relatives or people closely related to them were very low, very, very lowly ranked. I did, I did not know this. Yeah, so like the, the sweat and the, this our ability to kind of these pheromone-esque type, like you're saying, very primitive reactions to things, to ask them, okay, you rank this one, a number one, why, would be almost... Exactly yeah. the same as asking them in the situation you're saying. Yeah, how would they... you? Yeah, there's no reason. Yeah, you yeah. Can't no, because <laughs> clearly you don't. I mean, I assume I could be wrong, but in that experiment, when they smell the different smells, they don't identify them. They don't say, "Oh, this is Uncle Larry." No, or whatever. no. Yeah, they just <laughs> they just give a ranking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I want to read this um, this next part. Uh, this sure. <laughs> this is so. Our models incorporate a layer of neural control mechanisms for optimizing performance of the underlying decision-making circuits. That is, they help these circuits maximize rewards during stimulated task performance. They generate precise quantitative... Simulated. Sorry. Just so your listeners... I should say simulated. If it says stimulated, I've got... Oh, I've got oh where did I say that? <laughs> oh, it is simulated. I don't know. During okay, simulated good. task performance. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Okay. (laughs) Good catch. During simulated task performance, they generate precise quantitative hypotheses about choices, response times, and brain activity that we test with experiments in human behavior and electroencephalography. Encephalography. You can just say EEG if you like. Okay. And electroencephalography. Okay. Yeah. I mean... Okay, let's go. To, let's start at the back. I got to break these sentences up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they generate precise quantitative hypotheses about choices, response times, and brain activity. So we're measuring yeah. them with EEG. So we've got electrodes on people's heads or, or animals' heads, mm-hmm. yeah. and we're giving them some simulated task performance. So does that mean? Explain that, I guess, to start. Sure. So it's, the easiest thing is just to give an example, um, and the one of the classic ones is to see a big cloud of moving dots on a screen. They're just jumping around randomly, but some of them seem to be moving to the right. And your task is, are they moving rightward or are they moving leftward? But it's hard because you've got to look at these dots. A lot of them aren't doing anything. They're not doing either one. So there's noise. There's signal buried in the noise, just like we experience all the time, like we're experiencing with this conversation right now. Did, is that a glitch or did he just you know, go quiet for a second? I've got I've to think about that and I've got to uh, you know, align it up with what I've experienced before. Thank you for so, doing that. Now I can leave these glitches in and not have to. Exactly. <laughs> like part of the, they illustrate everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you are somehow sampling or looking at these stimuli, trying to make your decision. And it's known that what we do is something called a speed accuracy trade-off. If you try to make your decisions really, really quickly about which way the dots are moving, you're going to make more mistakes. There's just no avoiding that. That's a law of behavior in humans and non-human animals. So the longer they sample a stimulus, the more accurate they become. But that's at the cost of speed. 
So when you're trying to figure out things like, can I make it through this intersection? Can I get across the street before this car is coming? Well, you know, if you sit there and look at the car for a long time, by the time you figure out whether it's close or not, it's already close. So there's time built into it too. You've got to figure out, um, well, there's a trade-off here. I can't just glance at a car really, really briefly and then just walk into the street because it takes time to estimate velocity. But if you take forever to estimate velocity, you're never going to get across the street. So you've got to make this trade-off for yourself. And it's not clear what that trade-off should be, but it is clear that we have them and that, other, that we make them and that other animals make them and they can't avoid it. So what you can do is give stimulus after stimulus and ask people, click a button when you know which way it's, or when you want to say which way the dots are moving. Uh, or you can ask a monkey, um, move your eyes to the right when you think the dots are moving rightward. And if you get it right, here's where the, I don't think I finished this point earlier, here's where the conditioning comes in. You can't get a monkey to do anything it doesn't want to do, mm -hmm. period. Monkeys don't care what you want. Uh, they want what they want, and that's it. They're very autonomous. <laughs> and what they want is fruit juice. They love it. And so what you can do is say, well, you learn how to do this task. I'll give you fruit juice every, I'll give you a little squirt of it every time you make a correct decision about the direction of the moving dots. And then they become experts. They'll do it for hours. Huh. Date juice. And they will get better at it. They will behave in... Oh, did we glitch out again? We just did a tiny one, yeah. But you were saying... I think we picked it up enough okay. that like, they'll, they'll do it for the fruit juice. Exactly. Yeah, and they'll figure out how to do it very well. And they'll make that trade-off pretty effectively. So they won't look forever. They're not as good... They do seem to be a little more impulsive than us. We can really look for a long time if, it, if that's what's needed. Uh, they're not going to typically do that. They get impulsive and they just don't want to wait that long um, but basically they will spend more time on more difficult stimuli and they'll go faster for easier ones and anything they do they're trying to get more fruit juice and so this is a really good way to understand brain circuits because in fact you can record from different parts of the brain to understand well, well how are they doing this this is you know when you talk about autonomy and you know, controlling your destiny, you, you are, you're talking about decisions. What decisions do I make? How do I make them? You know, it's hard sometimes to study really high level decisions. Should I go to graduate school? Should I take a job? Should I do whatever it is? Should I get married? Should I not? Um, those, those involve all sorts of really high level factors, but we still make low level decisions too. And so it's hard to ask a monkey, you know, what do you think about marriage? But <laughs> you can definitely ask it, do you think this fruit is ripe enough to eat? Or should you pass this one over for another one that's riper so you get that nice sweetness, but you keep looking for the perfectly sweet fruit and some other monkey's gonna gobble up everything and you'll be starving. So you have to make these trade-offs all the time. They do too, we evolve you know, we, our ancestors diverged only a few million years ago. So we're similar to them. And so you can study their brain circuits. You can study rats, brain circuits. They do the same thing. They can make two choice decisions or more. And um, you start to get uh, an understanding of how a neural network model of this process might work. You have detectors for simple, basic visual features 
that send their outputs like, hey, I'm seeing the thing that I am designed to detect. It's here. It's present now. I'm going to tell the rest of the brain about it, or at least parts of it. And that other part might say, well, yeah, but I'm getting conflicting evidence from these other neurons over here that think the dots are moving leftward. And so those areas can, over time, accumulate evidence from rightward detecting and leftward detecting motion sensors and pile it up until they get a sense that, oh, there's a lot more rightward evidence now. There's a sufficiently greater rightward evidence surplus than there is leftward. So I'm going to go ahead and move my eyes to the right visual target. We'll track the monkey's eye. I don't work with monkeys, but th this is a classic line of work um, in decision making. And they will move their eyes to that target. Now you can study what circuits are involved in moving the eyes. You can essentially observe the whole process of taking in information, accumulating it, and then linking that to reward. Because again, they won't do it unless you pay them. <laughs> they, they only work for payment. And so then, and they're trying to maximize it. And they're also keeping track of the time involved in all these things because they want to get as much fruit juice per unit time as they can get. They don't want to get one squirt and be like, yeah, I nailed it. Mm -hmm. They want to get squirt after squirt. And if that means moving their eyes randomly, if that works, they'll do it. So, so now you can observe this activity in their brains and you can non-invasively non-invasively observe it in humans. You can't stick an electrode usually unless somebody's got some kind of disorder that requires brain surgery or something like that, um, or implantation of electrodes. There's, there are, there increasingly, there are more and more conditions that involve um, sticking electrodes deep into the brain or into the surface yeah. and manipulating it. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the area that I've, I've worked in and my, my sort of I guess somewhat unique contribution to it would be really paying attention to the role of time. So I, my own take on everything is that we're timing everything constantly. I think you're doing that right now. You're keeping track of like, well, how long has he been talking? How, <laughs> what are my listeners going to, you know, what are they going to find interesting? Should I interrupt here? Should I let him keep going? This is really important. And so um, that's what I find fascinating. And it, it's less well understood how the brain does that. So we understand all these circuits involved in decision making. You get an animal that did we glitch? Here you go, so a little bit. Yeah. Um, so okay. we have. Uh, sorry, we, we get an animal that. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just picking up where you were going. I was going to say to add in one thing there. Um, that might make it a little different in that, like, I don't have constant, um, maybe, you know, messages or something. Hey, you, you rated this time in between interjections and in the future, I always love when you do this or this or this. So that feels like what a, 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 a subject's brain might be doing, or just as life does to us more typically, like you're saying here, I'm listening and just wondering, you know, where to throw, add in or making sure I'm not like letting too much time Throw go by mm -hmm. but at yeah. the same time mm -hmm. i don't have a ton of extra factors influencing that decision i don't have 
oh, well, user da-da-da-da-da says I should jump in every 30 seconds. And user so-and-so says I should let people go for 10 minutes. And I'm not but weighing you have a lifetime. Of you have a lifetime of experience of talking to people who've bored you to tears. Right. And others who've excited you. And, you know, you know what the patterns of speech are that work well and those that don't work well from all these different, you know, if and if you didn't, no one would listen to your podcast, <laughs> right? And you, you've yeah. learned what, to some extent anyway, what works and what doesn't mm -hmm. from experience. And you might not get detailed feedback from your listeners, but the fact that they come back or like certain episodes, or maybe rather other than more than others, you, you start to get a feel for that from their facial expressions. If you can see them, you know, if you're in a one-to-one -one kind of context or in an in-person context but yeah you're t you are taking all that in and saying yeah this is working or no this is not <laughs> do something here um and i think time is really really a hugely important factor and the reason i'm so interested in it is that unlike other aspects of human behavior like forming new memories i don't know if you've ever seen the movie memento but yeah this is a it's a really good uh, description of what happens if you knock out certain parts of the brain that are critical for forming new long-term memories. So although we don't understand everything about it, we know the hippocampus is absolutely essential for forming new long-term memories. And if you kill those brain areas, cut them out, you know, whatever, you get an infection or a stroke, you got somebody who just cannot function. They live in the moment and they don't remember anything that happened more than two minutes ago, uh, unless it's long-term memory from their childhood or something like that, but they can't form new long-term memories. So there's this area for that function. There doesn't seem to be any brain area for keeping track of time per se. You, you know, you can get somebody whose hippocampus is gone and you train them on a timing task where they have to press a button at a particular time, they may say, I've never done this before, even though they've done it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And because they've done it a thousand times, they get better at it. And so, well, what brain area does that? We often think that certain cognitive functions are localized to certain parts of the brain. That used to be controversial back in the 20s and 30s, but we found that there's very very specific areas you you knock out broca's area you get somebody who cannot talk um it's a pretty localized area it's in, usually it's in the lower left side of the prefrontal cortex some people have it on the right but you know you knock that out you just eliminated speech while sparing everything else this they're still there they can still oh. make new memories uh, but they can't talk this is what aphasia is there's no timing aphasia there's no there's nobody who as far as we know as it's always dangerous to say that but as far as we know there aren't people who can do everything that they used to be able to do but now they have no sense of time's passage or the ability to produce timed responses so that fascinates me and that's why i study that how do you think you got onto time being the at the heart of what interests you the most about it because you get into uh oh like watch what this monkey does with its eyes it learns how to do this and we're tracking that part of the brain and you go on and on and on all the different experiments you can do to and seeing all the different parts of a brain map light up and feeling yeah. like oh it's like a city grid and i know the city pretty well i can drive to every neighborhood now because i've seen them all light yeah. up and you're like yeah yeah 
fine. But <laughs> the time, that's what, what was it that drew you to that specific component? What, what drew me to it is the, the cliche that you study your own pathology. I have problems with being late. Mm -hmm. I, I always have. I want to fit as many things in as I can before I absolutely, I was late for our, I didn't get a link. I didn't know where the Zoom <laughs> link was. Oh, yeah, so well, I thought, well, this gives me license to be a little bit later. He can't be mad if I'm a little bit late. Um, you know, so I went down and played the drums for a while. <laughs> you know, I, I just, it was the time when I could do it. And I thought, well, I can fit a little bit in, but I did it a little too long. And I, and I thought, God, darn it, I did it again because I do it all the time. And, and that is something that I've done since I was a kid. And other people aren't like that. You know, they're very punctual. And I can be if I have to be. It really is all about reward and punishment. You know, it depends. You punish me enough, I'll be on time. But if mm -hmm. you don't, I'm going to let it slide because I want to fit all these other things in beforehand. I want to make sure. I don't know why. I'm not sure why. That's, that's <laughs> when how I catch been. myself doing that and I stop myself and I don't know how much I, I guess I don't try to give too much thought to free will and nature and nurture and all those things. Yeah. I just think like on one side, like if if you were the universe, say the universe itself was a scientist and it ran you know, however long humans go. And then it was like, okay, we'll take that one specific life. It had this genetics and it was met with this origin start. It was in Texarkana and living in a trailer, da 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 And mm -hmm. then you go, let's try it again with these genetics. And you go through it. I just like to think, okay, well, I'm one of those people. I don't really have a, I have some control or I don't know, but I, I can't spend yeah. a lot of time wondering about it. But I'll have a thing where I'll look at, say, the microwave. 38 seconds. Okay. Can I run out in 38 seconds and do this, 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 and this? Sure. And on the times when I go, you know what? You never make it. You never, sometimes you yeah. not only don't make it, you come, you forget about it. And then, you know, minutes later, if not longer, you come back and, oh, there's something in the microwave. So I'll just stand there for the 38 seconds and feel Don't weirdly, you hate that? I do. What a I waste feel, of time. That's how I feel. I feel like <laughs> exactly. kind of accomplished that I made myself stick there. And at yeah, the same time going, oh, this is brutal. And I'll try that's to... Why, that's how I am. I interpret every instance of being early for anything, unless it's absolutely critical, <laughs> as I've just wasted part of my life. Yeah, you that's know? exactly how it feels. Do I could have do... gone done these other fun things, and I wasted it. <laughs> do you... The, here's, here's one you might not do, but I found this very helpful. You're... Uh, about to turn left and the car in front of you is looking at their phone and the arrow is now uh. switching and you don't make it. They go, they get through, they wasted everyone's time behind them and they yes. sneak through <laughs> as it turns red and you sit there and sometimes I'll just start counting. It's about the same as the microwave usually. It's like 20 seconds or so, you know, or, or if I'm waiting for someone to, you know, just maybe it's not even as dramatic as the light turning red. I'll just, yeah. oh, someone's, waiting to turn left and I got to wait to go around them. I'll just start counting. It's normally ah. between like 10 and 20 seconds. And so I start incorporating that to like the microwave time and going, all right, this calms me down. I, in okay. my head, uh -huh. this waste of life or like, oh, I was supposed to be where I'm going a little sooner, but this person, this person did this. And then you right. count it out and you're like, oh, it's such, it's so ridiculous to get upset about this nine sure. seconds. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can you can approach trying to comfort yourself in a situation like that. And, you know, I find myself frequently 
proud of myself when I have a run of being on time. <laughs> I mean, I'm not late for my classes, for example. Mm -hmm. This is just such a, it's just so bad. You know, there's just nothing worse than coming like, oh yeah, I don't even care enough about this to even be here when you're all here ready to go. Mm -hmm. And what an unprofessional, just, it's just not good. <laughs> so I am on time for that. Um, anywhere I've got any slack, I'm gonna, I'm gonna slide in that direction and other people aren't. The anxiety of being late for some people is so overwhelming that, oh no, they would be there an hour early because you... then they know they will not experience that anxiety. I still experience the anxiety. I'm, I'm pissed at myself when I'm running late, but I'm not pissed at myself enough. I'm not <laughs> anxious <correct>. enough <laughs> to outweigh the, no, I'd rather do these other things first. Yeah. And that's a, that's a personality difference that I'm not explain. I just know where I am on that spectrum. And so it fascinated me. And then I found out that there's all these aspects of artificial intelligence and neural networks and all those things and models of the brain that don't incorporate time. So all these uh, neural networks that you hear about, I mean, they're, they're trying to do things about this now, but the classic neural networks that learn, they get an input and they spit out their decision. It, it's always taking the same amount of time. It just feeds from the sensory inputs to the outputs in you know, one direction, and it always takes the same amount of time. And I know that's not how humans experience life. We've got all sorts of stuff going on in between that. We hold memories in mind. We're keeping track of how long it takes to do certain things and even our decisions that we make about, you know, whether you should turn, whether you can make it or whether you shouldn't at an intersection, um, that takes time too. So just making simple decisions can be quick or it can be slow. And that's, those aspects of human behavior didn't seem to be reflected in simple neural network models, didn't seem to be reflected in classical AI models. And I, in my PhD program, um, wound up trying to show that you could use neural networks to um, do things that were supposedly, back in the day, considered uh, impossible for neural networks, which is to solve problems and make plans. And so I made a neural network model that was able to um, essentially move balls around on a, a pegs in a game called the Tower of London. It's a, lot, it's a game where you have to move colored balls around so that they match a desired final configuration. Okay. People take more or less time to do this. It depends on how difficult the problem is. Um, and what I needed was in this model uh, was a way to say, I'm trying to move this ball to this position here. How do you know when you need to give up? How do you know when, well, I can't move it there. There's a ball in the way. Sometimes it's obvious why you can't solve something. Sometimes it's not like, well, okay, so there's something in the way, but what do I do about that? And is there some way around this? How long do I work on this before I said, you know, the hell with this, I can't move this ball. I'm gonna have to try something completely different. Well, I'll build in a timer. We have timers on our phones and our computers and all this stuff. It's not, it's not hard to build a clock or a timer. We've been doing that for centuries. But how does the brain do it? And I just wanted to know what the solution was. Just give me the solution. I'll build it into my model. Surely psychologists and neuroscientists know this and I'll just build it in. And the more I investigated this, the more I found that nobody knows how we do that. 
they have hypotheses, but they all conflict with each other and people, there's no consensus about how we do this. And that's how I really got drawn into, well, what are the brain circuits that we use to keep track of time? How do we, um, you know, where, where are they in the brain? And what is their nature? Can we model them with a simple computational or mathematical model that explains exactly what's going to happen? And I was it turns like, out there is a trick. There's a, there's a, there are patterns of behavior that people have, and there's a certain kind of neural network that can do it. And people didn't know that before. They, it's not like I came up with it out of whole cloth. I, I just put together enough of the different pieces that people hadn't kind of put them all together finally to say, oh, you could do it this way. And it explains a lot of what we see. And, and, and one of those patterns that we have is that the longer you have to wait, the more inaccurate you become. So you're supposed to press a button in 10 seconds. Well, you might press it in nine seconds, or you might press it at 11 and think it's 10. I keep so thinking of um, whack-a-mole. And sure. if, if they're really coming at you and your objective is just don't miss, you just want to have as many strikes on gopher heads yes. accurately as possible, then you could wait. And you could, I'm just looking at this hole, boom, yeah. and hit it. But if you're just trying to hit as many as you need to, you're going to have some misses. Sure. That, that seems to sync up with this a lot. That like, what if you wait over one specific hole, it comes up and you're like, is that a gopher? Yes, that's a gopher. I should hit that gopher. Definitely going to hit that gopher. And then it goes down and you're like, and you missed it because you yeah, were you thinking too much, too much time. Yeah, sometimes you have to anticipate. And if there's any pattern... The only way to win, you know, a lot of video games are like that. You know, this and a lot of things in life are like that, right? This this little creature is going to pop out of its hole, and I'm I need to get it to eat. Well, then I better figure out what it's going to do ahead of time, and this is what all predators and all animals when they're trying to um, hunt something, they're using estimates of time as well as everything else in order to, and, and, and animals use estimates of time to figure out when they should come back and uh, drink nectar from a flower. Certain flowers have a certain amount of time for refilling their nectar and hummingbirds can learn this. It could be a 10 minute window and they know, don't come back, you were already here. But half an hour later, they'll be back. And if they're not, some other hummingbird will. And so they're good at timing intervals like that. And so one of the findings is that, you know, yeah, you try to keep track of a certain amount of time, you're pretty accurate on average, but you tend to be a little early sometimes, a little late other times. And the longer that interval is, the longer your inaccuracy or the larger your inaccuracy will be. So if you're pressing a button at 10 seconds and you're not counting and, you know, you're just, you know, for whatever reason, you just know I've got to press this button at 10 seconds, you might press it at 9 or you might press it at 11. But you don't press it at four. You don't press it at 20. <laughs> yeah. I started doing so a thing when I would a... have uh, flights. I know people do this when they have a, an alarm clock they have to get up every day. They'll start yeah. waking up yeah. and looking over and it's one minute away or something. Oh, sure. I do that all the time. That Yeah. Absolutely. I started doing a thing where I, you know, it wasn't predictive because I'd get up at different times all the time. But if I had an early flight, as I laid down, I would say sometimes out loud to myself, I'm going to wake up in six hours. And then uh -huh. I would just telling my body to, and I think that's kind of a uh -huh. joke from like Kramer does that on Seinfeld or something like, is that probably, he's right. like, Oh, I got this indoor clock. But I thought there must be something to that. We, we rarely rely oh, on is. it or ask ourselves to 10 seconds or 
going back to a microwave. Like I'm going to walk out and I'm going to come back right as it's getting to one. Yeah. And sometimes when you do that, you're like, well, of course I did. I have a clock in my body. That's right. You know, we, we, but it has, but you know, to, to understand how it works, you got to understand things about like, well, well, how accurate is it? How precise is it? And why isn't it perfect? Why don't you do it right every time? Well, you don't, right? You Sometimes you're a little late. Sometimes you're a little early. And the finding was that your, um, I'm trying to avoid mathematical terms here, but let's say it's a 10 second interval and you, you know, it's not at all uncommon for you to press it nine or 11. Well, now if it's a hundred second interval, it's not uncommon for you at all to press at 90 or at 110. In other words, your precision seems to grow, uh, sorry, imprecision seems to grow with the length of the duration you're trying to keep track of. And there's no particular reason that has to be that way, but it's a funny, interesting, sort of very robust pattern. Some people call it a law of behavior, and it's called time scale invariance. That basically, maybe you're 10% off. You can characterize somebody's timing abilities in terms of what percentage of the duration off are they on average. So if you're a really good timer, you might be 2% off. It doesn't matter what the duration is. And I'm 6% off. You're just better at it. And I'm, I'm more frequently off by, you know, a little bit larger amount. Do you find that it can be, uh, honed in? Cause I, so the, you I used train to, it, you mean? yeah, we used to do this show called the junk show and there's this little speakeasy bar. Uh, Matt, our friend has been to mm-hmm. the junk show and after oh, the yeah, show sometimes, this in LA or? yeah, this is in LA. Okay. And All right. uh-huh. So we'd hang out in this little speakeasy bar with some friends sometimes. And a game we often played was we just start with the two of us, me and my partner, like uh stopwatch, just guessing. And then I, you'd go, you know, and stop. What do you think? And they'd take a guess. And then we'd have friends come in and join and everyone's taking a guess. But then it starts Did you being count. People. We would, we would, so it would, you'd have to count to yourself and then you'd, yes. whoever's closer. So, you know, so like, I'll just do it and then I'll stop. What was that? Someone mm-hmm. would say it was 8.23. And someone would say it was nine point blah, blah, blah. And someone would say, no, uh-huh. 7.5. And then everyone starts getting better and better. And then pretty soon we start taking turns and mm-hmm. I'm going to choose a random thing. It's 10.23. You say stop. And then the person would stop. We'd go around and around doing this. But over oh, you've time. you've done this. Okay. Oh, tons. And like, yeah. people get better and better. No one ever I stays just the same of always being off or short of it. They just start getting where you can get everyone's I got a close. new. I got a new version for you. Oh, sweet. And this version involves not counting. Okay. And not use so what I think you do in cases like that where you're getting better is you're learning that things like tapping your foot mm-hmm. rhythmically or counting or something else you can use more sensory stimuli and you can use those to help you boost your precision. But if you can't do that, oh, you glitched a bit. You know, go ahead and do that the whole time. Oh, okay, so. I, the whole time you do this task, let's say I, I ask you to remember a sequence of numbers. So go ahead and do that, but you also have to remember 7342. Oh, man. So now you, it's tougher to count now because if you do that, you're going to forget the numbers. Yeah. And now you just have to rely on what we call dead reckoning. You just, <laughs> you go, I, I don't know what it is now. I think this time is up. That's all I can tell you. I didn't count. I didn't use, I wasn't moving rhythmically. I wasn't doing anything like that. It's going to be, I predict, I don't know this, I predict it's going to be a lot tougher to improve 
And you'll find that some of you are just inherently a little bit better than others at, at being close to the target. So there's nothing you can build on anymore. And yet yeah. we can still do it. And rats don't count. We don't mm -hmm. think. They don't say the words one, two, three, four, five. And yet they can keep track of time. Um, mice can keep track of time. And we just found in a lab that I collaborate with um, that mice can learn to change. So they were supposed to press a lever at six seconds to get reward. Now all of a sudden it's 12 seconds or it's, you know, 13.2, whatever it is. And they just sit there and wait? And just they wait, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they'll start pressing early, uh -huh. but, but the longer that duration is, the longer they'll wait because it's pointless to sit there. It's like standing in front of the microwave and pressing done or whatever, opening the door. And mm -hmm. you say, well, oh, well, it's not done yet. The timer <laughs> hasn't gone off. And so you shut the door and let it go again. After a while, you're like, this is just wasting everything to open the door all this time. I'll wait till it's close to the time. Yeah. And I'll see if it's done. And, you know, you have to imagine a microwave where you can't read the time off because there's no point in opening the door. If you can see that there's six seconds left, don't do it. If you just have to dead reckon it, you might think, I can't do this. People can totally do it. Whoa. And if I changed it from 30 seconds to 45, it would take you one trial to basically be as good as you're going to be at the new 45 second duration, as long as you're not using these counting mechanisms. Yeah. So, so something in your brain is able to keep track of that amount of time. And it has this weird property that the longer the time is, the more imprecise you become in a very particular mathematical way. Hmm. And a particular kind of neural network model can totally do that. And it really was, for me, this was like, wow, the, you know, all the machinery to to make a mathematical model of this it all existed it's not this is not new stuff but like music or anything else it's just putting together existing things that are off the shelf in a new combination and suddenly you've got a new model that people thought couldn't work before but it does it works well i i always love well. that creatively i was going to ask you this when you have an idea and you're certain, oh, that's, that's been done. And then you, you start by asking around and yeah. maybe you Google and pretty soon you've explored every place you could look for this and realize it's just, I, I'm not finding it. It may exist. Yeah. So creatively right. it might be like, oh, this was an old blah, blah, blah episode, but yeah. I'm not seeing it. And then you, right. you proceed with it, with this feeling of, you know, especially in standup, you can get on stage and they're the first few times you're expecting someone in the green room or off stage to go, Hey, you know, that was a so-and-so bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but when they don't and you feel pretty confident, like, okay, cool. I think this was something new. Mm -hmm. Then you're really free to pursue it. And I would guess yes. that with the time, that's how that felt of like, that's oh, exactly cool. how it was. Nice. Yeah. It's like, wait, you kidding me. You haven't all put this together. I just can't believe that you thought this couldn't work. Um, and, and then it does, and then that opens up a whole bunch of different possibilities to further explore, well, okay, if this process seems to be able to work, then, you know, let's investigate what brain circuits underlie that. Let's come up with new tasks to test further what our timekeeping abilities are. And yeah, no, it's it's totally like that. And, and it is like com comedy or music or any creative endeavor Probably somebody did. Mm -hmm. They did, and nobody knows about it, and it right. got forgotten. Yeah. Oh so, well. Oh yeah. That's just that's just humans. It's fine. Like, yeah. Exactly. I mean, the, the the number of ants that probably crawled out and found a little piece of cantaloupe, and 
drag the scent back and we're like, I'm the first ever to find cantaloupe. Yeah. And they just, they, they're unfamiliar with different ant colonies, with how long ants have been around. So there's sure. just an inherent thing, I think, with us. But it's fun when we're finding that cantaloupe. Yeah, um, and what's wrong with rediscovering something, you know? Yeah. I mean, if a joke... Oh, sorry, I'm glitching again. Nobody's heard it in 75 years of glitching. Yeah, yeah sorry, I just started know, waving my hand. Funny joke's a funny joke. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I th- and there's always going to be a new way of telling it. Someone sings a cover song, it sounds right. different. And it's just, there's going to be a, a your splash on something or your take or your tint of whatever lens you're putting it through. It's just... The fingerprint we it all unique. Have. Yeah. Yes. Unless you're just blatantly word for word stealing someone's thing. But right. you, here's another um, part of it. We also focus sure. theoretically on composing these basic circuits into larger models capable of more complex behavior. Our work in this area provides a possible theoretical link between different levels of description in psychology and neuroscience. At the neural level of description, neurons and neural populations are the objects of study. We use dynamical systems, stochastic processes, and deep learning neural networks to model them. So yeah, again, this like, all of these could be such a sci-fi movie because it seems like... Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, pretty much any cutting-edge area of science, you, you, you hear about it and you're like, wow, that's like science fiction. And it's just crazy that we can understand any of that. But... Um, yeah, the, my my idea was I had come from this more classical artificial intelligence, high-level psychology orientation where what we're trying to figure out is how people do things like plan a solution to some problem. And that, that involves all sorts of factors. You have to consider different alternatives, and it's complex. That's one way to start, and that's one level of description. What What's a human? A human is somebody who can solve all these problems and describe it to other people in language. Um, well, what is the neural basis of that? That's a completely different level of description. Now you're looking at these very tiny parts, each one of which doesn't do any of those things. They're, relatively speaking, incredibly dumb, these individual simple elements. So the old attitude back when we weren't really able to study these things very effectively was, well, I don't know how it works and it doesn't matter. Let's just talk about how people respond to incentives or how they verbalize what it is they're doing when they decide to move the pawn instead of the queen or whatever in a chess game. And then it turned out, well, now you can start, you can actually start looking at the building blocks of that complex behavior and tying those building blocks to simple neural processes. So yeah, I, I got to figure out, you know, I'm playing chess and I just don't know if you can see where the bishop is and I don't know totally what you're going to do next, but I have some ideas, but there's this clock running. I can't sit here forever, so I'm timing how I do this one simple move. Well, that low-level process of just seeing where the pieces are on the board and keeping track of time, those are things we can begin to investigate at the neural level. And I mean, you know, now with brain imaging, which came out like in the 90s, essentially with fMRI, maybe you could argue earlier with other technologies like PET and stuff like that. But um, you can look at high level uh, processes and sort of tie it to different parts of the brain. But then you don't. okay, so this part of the brain lit up. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, I could. Well, something's happening there. 
mm-hmm. that didn't happen in a different situation, but do you understand how it did it? No, it's just a blob of light, you know, and it's lit up because we, we colored it that way with a computer program. It's, we don't know, you know, if you really understood, you could build one, you could build a brain that did all these things. Well, we can't do that yet. Maybe God knows what it'll do to our society, but maybe we will be able to someday, but we're not even there. We're not even close really. And so, um, to, to, to get to that low level understanding, you have to start looking at a different level of description, not whole brains, but individual circuits made of neurons, individual neurons, parts of neurons. You know, there's a trade-off between this reductionist approach of going down to the simplest little pieces and really understanding, oh yeah, you change this one neurotransmitter. Oh boy, you're going to have either all sorts of problems or all sorts of really interesting results. And so now we can talk about individual neurotransmitter chemicals, um, but then you can lose sight of the forest for the trees. And now you say, well, yeah, now I know what chemical it is that causes this neuron to become more excited and send more messages. But do I now understand how you came to your beliefs about things? No, that's not the level at which we understand beliefs and desires and things like, wow, you really need a drug that would stop, um, you know, that would, uh, let's say, blunt uh, a bipolar uh, oscillation in mood. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty low level thing. That's not because you have, I would argue, and almost I think almost anybody would agree that if you have severe bipolar disorder, it it isn't because you philosophically sat down and thought about things and suddenly became, you know, your beliefs made you bipolar. It's probably a low level thing that involves neurotransmitters that for whatever reason, genetically, you have a predisposition to uh, a mood oscillation. And that's something that might, you know, not really respond to philosophy or argument or therapy even. I mean, it might be very important but it might be the case that hey, this is just a chemical thing. Mm-hmm. That's a low level of description. And I think we need to understand brains and minds at both high and low levels. So my my sort of thing with timing and decision-making is, hey, those are the building blocks of these much larger things like solving problems, making sentences that make sense and, um, you know, evaluating belief systems and values. Yeah, sure, we do all of those things. If we want to understand how neurons, well, let me just back up. Neurons don't do that. (laughs) Brains do that, but individual neurons do not do any of that stuff. But they do respond to psychotropic drugs. Mm -hmm. So what I like about this field is that you can work at both levels. You You can think of, and you have to. I think what a lot of our problems in understanding come from mistakes about levels of description that are appropriate to the problem. Get it wrong and you're going to think, you know, I've talked to neuroscientists like in grad school who are like, we just need to understand genetic um, code for specific neurotransmitters. That's all we need to do. Then we understand the whole thing. Like, really? (laughs) So now you understand how serotonin works, you think. And now you understand how people keep track of time and how they make plans and why they think certain situations are morally disgusting and others are perfectly acceptable. I don't think studying serotonin is going to give you that. You have to work at the level of talking to people if you want to understand that stuff. 
but you don't have to work it strictly one or the other. I mean, certainly you get the wrong level of serotonin. You may very well come up with a very, very pessimistic view of things <laughs> just because you don't feel good. Yeah. When you, so, uh, you brought up, uh, you, you said something in fact, like God help us or something like that. And it made yeah. me think of like, how often does God come up in your work or with people kind of joking, uh, like either playing God or are you looking at God's handiwork? Is there any mention of it or is that irrelevant? It is a funny question. I'm sorry. It's not a funny question. It's funny that you asked that. Um, people frequently, and it, it's probably true that a lot of scientists are because of their sort of materialistic or orientation and their tendency to be reductionistic, to look at the smallest element, because that pays off so well mm -hmm. in science, that many of them are atheists, let's mm -hmm. say, or agnostics. But my PhD advisor was not. He was an e evangelical Christian. Um, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the, the, the Genome Project in the National Institutes of Health, he is a Christian and he, he states this clearly. And again, the thing about science is it doesn't say anything about that. Who knows? You can't answer that question. And so that's entirely up to your value system and what you've sort of put together from what you've experienced. And so some people will, I guess the, the anecdote I want to relate on that is that I have heard in some situations that a, let's say a religious scientist will say something like, I don't think God would set it up that way. You can be religious and you can have all your beliefs, but that's not a scientific argument. You'll get hammered for that. You might yeah. get hammered for that by another very Christian or whatever, <laughs> very religious scientist who says, look, I may want things to be a particular way, but the data are what the data are. You don't get a say. And you know, you know the funniest thing about taking a religious viewpoint for me is that you you frequently say well I've, there's this omniscient or um, magnificent being at the heart of everything who are you to say that you you think they would do it this way or that you know it, god may very well have come in and said how oh, dang it well you don't like that but that's the way god wanted it you know you don't so you have to leave oh sorry uh glitch but um essentially religious or not religious you have to leave god out of the process of science because you can be religious and say look this is what god told me i did the experiment and here's what the data are that's god telling me what you know how the world is how how it was set up or you can approach it completely agnostic or atheistically and say that look i'm not even going to get into that the world yeah. is the way it is and what about to have some um empathy, I guess, for a person that could be in a God position. Say you figure out time and you, it's yeah. fourth dimensional type thing of like, oh, we were looking at neurons, but it was this, it was kind of an interconnectivity that was like, man, that was hard to track down. But we understand now language and tools and thought and imagination, and it's all harnessed within time. So we can replicate pretty close to a brain and we can yeah. unleash this and this will be kind of a new species because it is machines and yeah. there's a 91 percent likelihood that it'll mean the end of humans they will eradicate oh. them but we think they're going to be really good to the planet that's the hypothesis and then it's pre presented to you all right uh dr simon we're gonna leave it in your hands we can sure. either shelve this we've solved it great and we could run it on a computer to see what it would look like, 
or if you hit this button, we can let him go. What, right. what would you do? Would you have to see it? Like, so you are kind oh, of a guy. Yeah. Personally, I, I would, I, I think it would be taking any chances with eliminating us is terrible and not because let's just say, I, well, again, now this is getting into values and because it is, I can tell you why I think things and I could be totally wrong. <laughs> I could tell you it's because of this, you know, long, I've had this long philosophical thought process and here's why I think we shouldn't create killer robots or whatever. And it could really be, I don't want to die. Yeah. And I don't want my kids to die. And therefore, I'm going to figure out a reason why, you know, to make that ethically or, you know, philosophically uh, coherent. But it really is just, I just don't want to die. And I don't want to see a world without <laughs> that humans. There's 9% chance they'll coexist with <laughs> Well, let me go back and say, though, that your, your example is, again, not a science example. That's an engineering example. Okay. So what we should do with science is very often um, a separate question. So I'd like to understand how brains work. And I'd like to understand it so well that, yes, theoretically, we could make an artificial one. That doesn't immediately imply that I think we should. Mm -hmm. You know, what are we making them for? And as far as the planet is concerned, what about the planet am I trying? We're part of the planet. Yeah. You know, we're part of nature. Four billion years or 3.5, whatever it is, how many, however many billion years of evolution have led to us. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. you know, that's incredible. And it's part of nature. And so I can't see any reason why I'd want to create anything that would be a threat to that. Um, now, you know, as far as taking care of the planet, why do we want to do that? Um, yeah, it's we're beautiful. Not here to... so, it's a wonderful thing, but um, uh, what's the best thing for it? I mean, in a, you know, it's a long time, but in 4 billion years, this planet's going, it's going to be toast. <laughs> the sun is going to inflate and it's going to wipe everything out. And now I'm starting, I'm getting into Elon Musk territory, I guess. <laughs> but you can't avoid it, really. It's like, well, then what? Everything on Earth perishes. All that evolution goes to waste and it just gets incinerated. Yeah, sorry, I can't help it. You kind of think, well, if you love life, then you kind of have to wonder, well, how do we keep it alive after that? How do we keep it going? Um, humans are probably the best option for that. And um, I don't see why we would replace us. And I really do think what will probably happen is that we will create artificially intelligent entities where some might argue we already have, but they'll work with us. And we'll hopefully make it so that there are uh, things that make human life better. And I, I, you know, I think of movies again. My, fa I think one of my favorite artificially intelligent creatures is in the movie Interstellar. It's a long movie, but um, it's a great movie. And the robots in that movie are incredible. They sound just. Or another one is Her, mm -hmm. uh, where the you know. Johannes, the system of a fun and you know they don't replace uh, they don't replace humans they they either work with them or they leave them behind but they don't wipe them out yeah um i think that's probably some kind of mix of dystopia and utopia is what always seems to happen it's neither one or the other and i think that's probably what'll happen i don't know why anyone would want to make something to wipe us all out that doesn't make any sense 
Um, it could happen by accident, but you know, it could have happened with the bomb. Yeah. And it may yet happen with the bomb. We don't know. <laughs> it could happen with a disease, it could happen with anything. Yeah. Um, my guess is we won't do that and we'll figure out ways to create things that have whatever level of autonomy they need to get whatever job it is that we want done. And once they become sufficiently human, they'll start to have ethical demands on us. And, the, you know, you can't turn them off. That's murder. And <laughs> well, okay, then how many of these things do you want to make that are taking up all this energy? And, you know, I don't, you know, I just don't see us going to a point where, um, where we wipe humans out. It just doesn't. I like it. It could it's happen by hear. mistake. That's yeah. the only way. Yeah. I like it's good to hear. And I I I'm excited that people that are interested in the brain are excited about just knowing it, wanting to figure it out and and potentially yeah. alleviating a lot of the societal things we have with um and this this who knows if it's a residue of society and culture as it is, but Think of like all the seventies and eighties and like how many serial killers were active. And then oh, yeah. that was such a weird, pe- and now we have like mass shooters more frequently. And that's how this yeah. period will kind of be defined kind of similarly to that period where we don't think about it so much. And we don't think that that's what that whole era was. It was like, Oh, well there was music and film and all these beautiful things. Sure. But there was also this undercurrent of if we had the ability to identify, isolate, treat those brains. Yes really great society. So I'm excited about that, of knowing brains and knowing how to adjust them, to tune them a little bit. Right. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the level of levels of description idea. I think even in the future, most of that tuning is probably going to come from therapy. It's, it's going to come from human interaction. Yes. Mm-hmm. Drugs may be involved. Surgery might be involved. Every uh, almost every kind of brain surgery we've ever done to try to change um, your psyche winds up being a disaster, but that might be part of it in the future. I, you know, I'm thinking of lobotomies and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, going forward, my guess is our understanding of this will help shape things like, well, how, what is an effective therapy? What's the best way to treat somebody who just is amoral? They just don't have this medial prefrontal brain circuitry that you need to have to have empathy. What can you do with a person like that? Could you fix that circuit? Could you uh, make a more improved therapy to get somebody to think, well, look, I don't have any instincts about this. If somebody falls down in the road and they're in my way, I just don't feel any guilt at all about running them right over. (laughs) Well, I might still be able to develop a set of behaviors or a repertoire that is is practiced that says, look, that doesn't work well. You know you don't want to do it in some kind of abstract way. You lack these impulses that other people have to say to slam on the brakes. But you can learn to slam on the brakes. And maybe mm. we can help you with a drug or something like that. But that's what I think brain science will hopefully help people do, which is improve those ways of interacting with each other in, in therapeutic talking ways to change people's attitudes. I don't think you're necessarily ever going to get to the point where you can just go in and stitch some things together and suddenly you've got a fixed up human. I I, yeah. I find that very unrealistic, but you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of a cool thing that as humans, you're sort of marched out in the world like you're the autonomy we talked about. You're yes. in charge of this thing. you got to 
it needs certain nutrients. It needs water and sunlight and these kind, and it needs attention to how it feels. This being that you're in, so that I like that that it you couldn't just go in, open the hood. You're a perfect person. Enjoy life. Oh, yeah. No, I don't happen. think that's ever going to be possible. I'm not sure how you could even identify the circuits that you'd need to. <laughs> I mean, you know, everything progresses, and so maybe someday that will be possible. But um, what would that even mean? I mean, if you have just visual cortex could give one now we froze um you know you might be able to fix blindness by giving them an artificial visual cortex or something like that yeah but if you go in and and modify the circuits involved in empathy and and morality because they exist they're there um now you get into some very questionable areas it's not clear what right do you have to do some of these things if the person doesn't agree for example um, how do you treat a psychopath or a sociopath? Um, these are, these are questions that get into values again. You know, there's a trade-off between autonomy and, um, a smoothly functioning society and, and, you know, going, <laughs> imagine with the resistance that people have to things like vaccines and stuff that doesn't seem to really rob you of much autonomy um you just get you just get something that your immune system says oh i recognize that now and you mm -hmm. get it from a shot instead of from the actual disease or the the actual virus this has already generated so much enormous opposition among sub segments of the population can you imagine how they would react to the idea that we'll go in and change your brain circuitry to, to make you a better citizen or whatever. yeah this is like a nightmare scenario not yeah. just for them but for anybody really yeah. Yeah. There would be a, a frontier that maybe it would be more unified as weird as that is that like both parties looking over that edge into that chasm would be like, ah, we're I don't think very different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a great, there's a great sci-fi uh, short story from the early Soviet Union when they still had a little more freedom to explore different ideas about where, you know, it's kind of like a pre-1984 Orwell type um, idea and they they do they use brain surgery to change all these people into ideal citizens but it makes them essentially automatons they do, they don't have any freedom or dignity or autonomy in the end and in fact they get part of physically they get turned into these wheeled like uh robots basically and they have wheels now instead of uh, <laughs> legs it's a great story and i'm sure that person was shot probably uh you know the, during many i think he was actually wow. sent to the gulag or whatever um but it was a great story because it was dealing with exactly what the communist party was trying to do in the soviet union in the early days is thinking about well how do we the individual isn't as important yeah as the state and so now we can do all these let's sure surgery why not <laughs> <laughs> and they were struggling with that so yeah i'll bet well Dr. Pat Simon, Professor Oberlin College, this has been so fun. And thanks for, I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, but I feel like we could go on and on. I hope you uh, come back and do it again because I want to sure, talk so fun. much more about AI and all this stuff. But yeah. continued uh, success with your research, pursuit Thank of you. time and the brain. And um, yeah, thanks to our friend Matt. And, and hopefully you come back and do yeah, it again. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. This is great. Great idea. Well, thanks again to Pat. Apologies for the glitches. Did our best to work around them. Couldn't figure out what it was. Our 
Wi-Fi signals were both seemingly good, uh, and I tried to edit as much as I could around them. I hope that wasn't too frustrating, but given the times we are in and uh, how little it impacts things overall, I mean, the ability to communicate, like he was saying, a thing that would have been on the Jetsons or Star Trek or something, and we have minor little inconveniences, hopefully you're able to get past that because the conversation itself, I mean, it's so much, so much there. Hopefully you're still thinking about it. And, uh, I know I, uh, I really want to talk about that more. I just am so fascinated about, uh, all of the things we talked about and how they apply to what's next for humanity and mapping out our consciousness, et cetera. I've been writing a bunch of sketches and I teased to it earlier. Um, I kind of accidentally posted a little thing just testing how to do like new RSS feeds and things like that. But I'll have a new sketch podcast called Intercepts. And it involves a lot of stuff like this. They're little AI scientists and things like that. It's pretty silly, uh, just little vignettes, sketches. So it's been fun to um, record with friends and things like that. And I'll start sharing some of those ahead of time once I edit them, which I've been really kind of procrastinating on on the Patreon page. Thanks again to those of you who do support the show there. Uh, the show's brought to you ad-free by contributions from listeners just like you. Patreon.com slash Space Cave, or if you just search David Huntsberger, you'll find it. I really appreciate the support. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for subscribing, rating, all the things that help um, the algorithm. And thanks again to Matthew Clement, who set this whole chat up. So if you know someone that you think would be a good guest on this show, don't hesitate. Reach out. Lots of ways. Pings at thespacecave.com or you can go to davidhuntsberger.com. I'm reachable and I'd love to chat with uh, whoever you have in mind or if you have music suggestions or a beer or just a topic in general, let me know. So anyway, thanks. Uh, thanks again to Pat. Loved this conversation. I hope you did as well. And let's get out of here. This is a song by Alex the Astronaut. Uh, the lyrics, if you pay attention, I think are just fantastic. When tears stay in your face, you're not feeling great. I'll be there again and again, because I think you're great. I think we could all use a bit of that right now. So hang in there, everybody. I hope you're doing well. I think you're great. Enjoy this song. Uh, it's called I Think You're Great. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.
great. Nice. That's a fun song. <laughs> it is a fun song. You're a genius. Thank you.